All right, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Johnny Cerucci. We talked a couple weeks ago about one of his earlier books titled Eaters of Children and its relationship to the uh, Jeffrey Epstein saga. And uh, that kind of theme was an important one to kind of look into in, in modern context with what's been revealed about Jeffrey Epstein. But uh, tonight we're going to talk about a book he recently published, published December 14th. 2019. The title of that book is Romans of Mass Destruction, How the Vatican Created and Enabled Some of History's Most Monstrous Serial Killers. And I read the book in its entirety. It's an excellent book. And like his other books, very well researched and footnoted and referenced, which I really do appreciate. Some books do not have, aren't as uh, skilled and and serious about referencing. But Johnny uh, has that aspect to his writing, which I appreciate. But there are so many Names that I had heard, but not heard them in such context. Uh, and the book is really a volume one. It's ending end sometime in the 17th century. So there are a bunch of different names from different countries, such as Italy, France, uh, Romania, and covers a wide variety of topics. Uh, some of the names you might have heard, but we're going to discuss those and, and just try to get into some of the material. So, Johnny, are you there? I am, well. Uh, I'm I'm very pleased to be back with you, and again, thank you for your help with the book. Your recommendation is my top recommendation on the uh, on the back cover. Awesome. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad to be of help. So uh, for people who may not have heard you in the earlier shows, can you talk a little bit about your background, some of the books you've written, and also how you uh, decided to uh, write about the material in Romans of Mass Destruction? Sure, you bet. I... Born and raised Italian Roman Catholic in um, in the Northeast and conservative, quote-unquote conservative household, and encouraged me to be patriotic, and that led me into a career in the military. I became uh, frustrated. Well, let's see, before my career in the military, in and out of college, I... Eventually did uh, four, five, six years, uh, more than I should have to get a political science degree. And while I was in college, I learned how to debate. I also learned how to write. Well, I didn't learn, but I uh, polished those skills of debating and writing, being a quote-unquote conservative at a typical left-leaning public university and uh, wrote columns for the university newspaper. So that kind of put me on the on the path to having a strong opinion, but defending it in print in such a way that was better than just a uh, a pub argument, which is what started me down the road of of uh, leaning so heavily on citation, especially being outnumbered in, in almost any time I, I entered the fray. Went into the military and after a career in uh, both the Marine Corps and the Army and, and including a deployment to Iraq, uh, you know, got, got jaded, got jaded from my experiences. It seemed like my chain of command in either service was more the problem than the solution. Um, my time in Iraq was very depressing. Uh, I, I was not Audie Murphy, but I did spend a lot of time, quote unquote, outside the wire. Uh, allowed me to see things that were, you know, disturbing to me. Uh, to this very day, the country is a mess. Uh, 
and, and as I looked on that uh, objectively, you know, I, I guess it takes someone to be jaded and dissatisfied in order to ask questions. And it's sad that that's the way it is, but it's healthy to ask questions, be on the outside and ask questions. And I was still in the service when the reports of the so-called Osama bin Laden killing came about in 2011. And I knew immediately from connections in the service that the story was not what we were being told. And then as I did my own research as a follow-up, I found out that, that it was basically a complete fabrication with uh, willing members of both the media and the military involved, particularly Navy Special Forces, the SEALs, and so forth. And uh, I, I, having been a so-called conservative, I, would, I was born and raised on so-called conservative uh, you know, right-wing talk and so forth, and it was about that time with the administration of Barack Obama that I was, you know, even questioning these, these sources. They, they seemed to be not giving me information I knew was out there. You know, if I wanted a, um, someone to carry the water for the team, I'd listen to mainstream media. It was was my attitude. So it, it pushed me into asking more questions and digging deeper and I, can, I started to peruse so-called alternative – pardon me for using this so-called – air quotes. It's true though. I mean these things are not what they seem. Conservatives are not conservatives. Alternative media is not truly alternative media. But I started to look in there and dig, question, dig for information and ask questions for alternative media. And uh, it put me on this path to being very cynical uh, about government and about media and – I eventually came across a source that pointed towards the Catholic Church. Now, when I was in college, I uh, became a—I had a conversion experience, became a born-again Christian. I left the Catholic Church and became a born-again Christian when I was 25. So I had always wanted to get into Christianity and understand and learn the Bible, but it wasn't until this conversion that that, that actually took place. And, and after that, I— I had some questions about my own Catholic past and about the church in general. And there were some, some, some dark, um, legends, let's call them. Uh, but, but nothing specific, not, not in any Christian circles could I find just the overwhelming historical evidence of what the Catholic church has done. There's just some, and now and again, people will get into theological debates over, uh, you know, silly things. I say they're silly because in comparison to really important issues, uh, works-based salvation versus faith-based salvation is, is usually touted as the major difference between the Catholic Church and so-called Protestants. They're not really Protestants, is why I'm saying that. When in reality, the, the Catholic Church... And, I'm trying to be careful because I don't want to alienate Catholics, but look, I do, I do want to talk fair, honest history. And the honest history is the Catholic Church, n no institution, no institution has slaughtered, tortured, uh, killed more Christians than the city-state of Rome, either the military city-state or the religious city-state of Rome. 
That's what Fox's Book of Martyrs is all about. And this shocked me when I came across this. I, when I was looking in, in 2013, 2014, looking into this information, I would frequently come across the word Illuminati. Not so much today, but back then a lot. And when I looked into the Illuminati and that the, they were founded by a, con, a Jew converted to Catholicism, Johann Adam Weishaupt, from Roman Catholic uh, Jesuit-dominated Bavaria, modern Munich, it, it was shocking to me because I had heard that word again and again and again, Illuminati, Illuminati, that like, just like we hear today, deep state. Deep state. Right. It, it was meaningless. It's absolutely yeah. meaningless on purpose. But the historical facts, names, places, and dates are very illustrative of what's really going on. Right, but also they're not part of that narrative. As somebody, I can add to that, as somebody who came out of the Catholic Church, when you look at the line of the popes, they were all, the way the Catholic Church portrays them is that they were all people of the highest moral caliber, that they were set, set for that position as people as representatives of Christianity. But yeah. the truth of that is much different. Shocking. Absolutely right. shocking. The the way these popes cavorted, uh, I, I spend a lot of time on, uh, on one example. I want to mention as a, a, a caveat that when you look up this information for yourself, you ask Google, Google, give me a family name that controls from behind the scenes. You get Rothschild and Rockefeller and names that are, are Jewish like Rothschild. And you don't come across names that are ancient and extremely powerful. Borgia, Medici, Farnese, Aldo, Brandini, Orsini, Colonna. Names to this very day that are still in government. Not to mention having provided, uh, from, for instance... I think Medici has provided four popes, Borgia three, uh, and a host of cardinals and bishops and many, many more clergy. I think you mentioned in your book that there's a Borgia in Ecuador in power. Yes, right? yeah, 19, so. I want to say, pre, uh, uh, prime minister or president, 1993, 94. Shocking. Yeah. And his name was Rodrigo, just like uh, Alexander the Sixth, the pope that I cover in, in my Lucrezia Borgia chapter. Right. So Amazing. Yeah. Timeless. So when I, I came. I, I came across this information, William, and I was like, "Wow, I need to stop putting off writing a book because I had I had written an article, and it was all independent through my, through my own websites and blogs, and I would uh, see them occasionally. They would get mirrored. I would mirror them on other um, conspiracy theory sites, and I had one that that took off and did well, and I was surprised by it. It was it had to do with this issue of who the Illuminati were and I said you know what this is it I need to I need to knuckle down and write a book and that was Illuminati Unmasked and it, it talks about who the Illuminati really were were I see no evidence that they're in play today I, I my research tells me that they were a secret society within Freemasonry that was just a stopgap during the temporary suppression of the Jesuits, 1773 to 1814. They just wanted a little bit extra control. Johann Adam Weishaupt was immersed, steeped in Jesuit learning. 
began his Jesuit education at the tender age of seven years old. I think it was Francis Xavier that said, give me the child at seven and I'll give you the man. Shocking. Right. So uh, he eventually would go on to be a professor of canon law at Jesuit Ingolstadt University. Nobody talks about this. Are you kidding me? The, the mysterious founder of the Illuminati taught canon law at a Jesuit university, and, and I have some sources that say he was an incognito ordained Jesuit himself. So this is what pushed me into writing Illuminati Unmasked and then following it up with much more in-depth historical information, secret history. And then I came across some of the darker side. It's already dark enough. But I came across information that these, these constant news stories of clergy abuse of children bespoke something much more deeper, much more sinister, and and actually quite systemic. That, that equates basically to a war crime. The systemic enabled abuse, the, the violation of children by Catholic clergy. Uh, yeah, systemically is a, is a great way right. to put no, it. No, it's systemic. systemic, and it goes all the way to the top. I mean, they just they had Absolutely. the number three guy... From Australia, I wish I could remember his name. George Pro George Pell. George Pell, right? So number three, the Catholic Church goes to jail for I think just two choir boys, but that's what they had him on. I mean, the, these guys, a lot of these guys have tens, if not hundreds, of victims each. It's just incredible. I have found that the accusations always are well short. Well, pardon me. Let me put it this way: that the prosecutions are always well short of the accusations. The accusations can number in the hundreds, sometimes thousands, and yet the prosecutions are single digits. So, yeah, and you wrote, actually you wrote in this book how that the Catholic Church will move uh, priests around to locations where they're not familiar with the people, so they're not that tied to them. Like, that's, that's, Rico, a that's collusion. That's a war crime. So you have a, a child rapist it that the Catholic families who don't think right in the first place, they take the problem to their hierarchy. They don't take the problem to police. It really wouldn't do any good because, as we've seen again and again, the police will support the priest and and, and right. protect the priest. Only in rare occasions do you have prosecution leading to to uh, any kind of uh, you know penal action, prison time, or anything. Right, but. The, the family will take it to the, to the church hierarchy, and as soon as the church hierarchy gets the friction, I will say many times, they already know they have a pedophile. As soon as they receive the friction, they quietly move the priest to green pastures and move them to a diocese that is completely unsuspecting of the, the, the wolf that has been put in their fold. Are you kidding me? Why are not every member of this hierarchy euphemistically swinging? And, and really, for real, for real justice, it should be swinging literally. Well, it's like a, it's a no, they're knowingly doing it. And I think that at one point in his career, it was the guy, uh, the Pope from Germany, that was his job, was to move around these pedo priests to different things. Oh, I can't remember his name. Was it Ratzinger? Uh, yeah, Ratzinger, yeah. Yeah, well, he was he he ran the Inquisition. 
He was the prefect for the congregation of the doctrine of the faith, and it was his job. It was his job. As a matter of fact, this that's why he went to a former seminarian, almost monk, almost priest, John DeCamp, and asked John DeCamp to get out in front of the uh, Ohio sex trafficking, child sex trafficking scandal, and steer it in a direction safe for the Catholic Church. That's why we call that, not Ohio, pardon me, Omaha, the uh, Omaha-Nebraska scandal, that's why we call the Omaha-Nebraska scandal the Franklin cover-up. It was almost monk John DeCamp who gave us that phrase, Franklin cover-up. That comes from the Franklin Federal Credit Union and the middleman pimped provider of little boys, Lawrence King. Where was Lawrence? Uh, the Franklin C- Federal Credit Union had nothing to do with it. It just happened to be where he was holding up. Yeah, where they, was he getting the boys from? He was getting the boys from Boys, boys Town. Town. Right. But it, they, that's, they tried to tie that in with the, the savings and loan scandal because he embezzled like 50 million bucks. So they, that was part of it, but that wasn't really the core. Is that, that was a distraction from it. It yeah. was a distraction from it. That's what he went to prison on. Right. Because whose money had he embezzled? He had embezzled Boys Town money. And you could you could legitimately make the case that's the only reason he was brought to justice. That's the only reason that anything punitive happened to him because he crossed his own pedophiles that he was providing for by stealing their money. And you can still see that guy singing. I think it was at the Republican National Convention. Twice. Yeah, right at that time that all that the scandal was happening, he was going to D.C. So it was kind of like uh, Pizzagate or Epstein before you know before the, their time. That stuff was going on, traveling yeah, around. The, it, absolutely, this stuff. I really want to wake up uh, doctrinal. I don't know how to put it. Dogmatic is the word I'm looking for. Dogmatic. I really want to wake up dogmatic so-called conservatives and so-called liberals, Democrats and Republicans. I want to wake them up. They have all been played. They have all been played. And and I, I look at them debate each other and argue with each other. It's all the same. All these people are are criminals. The, they're, the Democrat Party and the Republican Party are all both deeply involved in sexual deviancy and abuse of of the innocent. I just say overall, overarching abuse of the innocent. It just depends on which decade, which administrations are in power is the ones that receive your our focus. But they're all terribly corrupt. That's how they got to where they are. They would not be where they are if they weren't terribly corrupt and owned. You've got to believe me that there's no way someone will make it to the to the office of president unless they were completely corrupt, blackmailed, and owned to, to do what they – how is it that policies really don't change between the two parties? Good point. Yeah. There's not Whether radical change. There certainly yeah, wasn't radical change between Bush and Obama. Not at all. Not at all. Whether it's open borders or fighting wars. Yep. And I told people to drive this point home. Donald Trump will close the borders just as fast as Barack Obama closed Guantanamo Bay. Right. Those those are both policy issues that I that I strongly believe in. I know for a fact, based on personal experience, based on also research, my time in the military, as well as my own research as a, as an author. The purpose, first of all, we got to step back for a second. 
Where is Guantanamo Bay? Guantanamo Cuba. Bay is in communist Cuba. Right. How does the United States Navy have a black rendition site on the island of our enemy, our, our so-called enemy? Right. It, it, it relates to how it is that John F. Kennedy was, was slaughtered in broad daylight. And anybody that, that has even touched upon what really happened immediately sees the bloody fingerprints of the CIA and not uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, stop. The second you acknowledge that the, the only entity powerful enough and organized enough to slaughter a sitting president in broad daylight is his own CIA, the next question you need to start asking is, why? That's a coup. Why would our own intelligence agency murder a sitting president? Because they don't answer to you. They answer to the same entity that has kept the Castros alive and in power for, what, what 70 years? Right, well, weren't the Castros uh, Catholic trained? I think they come from Catholic background. Jesuit trained. Jesuit Fidel trained, was yeah. trained in three separate Jesuit institutions, uh, a couple of those his brother Raul went to as well. Raul's a good altar boy. So they're a ludicrous. You step back and say, how did this little tin dictator who uh, was at risk of harboring Soviet missiles? It was such a dangerous place. Cuba is, was, and is such a dangerous place. He became a national threat, an international threat. And yet he stayed alive all these years. He's a nobody, little tin dictator. And there are reports out that he has survived over 600 assassination attempts. What'd you do, throw spitballs at him? Are you kidding me? How stupid am I? I, I, I know how military operations take place. I know how an intelligence operation takes place. I, it doesn't take 600 attempts to kill a sovereign, to kill someone in power. The reason is that they all work for the same malignant force, the Vatican. Okay, so, uh, well, I, I completely throw myself but, off. No, but you know what? It still kind of ties back into the material in your book because a lot of this stuff was going on. There's all so much political conniving in your book. It's endemic in the systems of power, whether it's a autocracy or a you know our so-called constitutional republic but i mean just the the power plays have been the reliance upon the catholic power at least in, in your books as well for um force for moral assumed moral authority and to bolster some of these tyrannies is is really a historical record fact for me yeah, it really has been erased, erased from history, erased from history. The power of the Catholic Church, it is a complete propaganda smokescreen that the Catholic Church is just a religious institution that, you know, you might rely on to go to confession every once in a while. No, it is the, always has been, since its inception, roughly 500 AD, always has been the dominant political force that sovereigns then through to now must receive instructions either overtly or covertly in order to proceed and it's it's i like to use the example 
of Henry VIII and his divorce. Well, let's people talk about that. <clears throat> yeah, people don't realize that that Henry and his in his mania, his desire to maintain this illusion of divine right control, hinged upon producing a male heir, and he is he was a devout Roman Catholic. When uh, Martin Luther wrote against the Roman Catholic sacraments, Henry VIII wrote a response and was awarded fide defensor, defender of the faith as a result. Devout Roman Catholic. Henry VIII uh, and his um, counselor, Thomas More, helped uh, Bible translator William Tyndale be betrayed extradited back to England and executed. It was it was Henry that, that made that happen. Yeah, it's remarkable. And that Tyndale had met with Luther, so you can see this kind of uh, movement by the Catholic Church at that time. And it's, it's a theme throughout the book, throughout the chapters, is this uh, attempt to forestall uh, different Bibles from reaching the hands of people in Europe, really, all over. And they finally, they finally, hit, a, they finally hit a dead end with uh, the Gutenberg Press. The Gutenberg Press was printing off vulgar tongue Bibles, Bibles that the common citizen could read, the common Christian could read, faster than they could be burned. Prior to that, prior to the press, the the tactic was to just burn the Christian and burn the Bible. And you destroy years, sometimes generations of work and effort. But it was the printing press, the movable type printing press, that made that impossible and, and required uh, uh, Cardinal Thomas Woolsey, also an Englishman, Roman Catholic, to come up with the tactic of learning against learning, of basically rewriting the Bible and rewriting entire real- our entire reality. And you in kind of way- bring that up in that chapter of chapter 5, is also the difference between the King James and the Geneva Bible. You think that, or you wrote, that the, la- the lack of marginal notes actually um, diminishes the meaning of the Bible in general. That, that's what King- It can't. Okay. It can. It, it certainly can, you can certainly make a case for a clean Bible, and the uh, the King James Bible being cleaned of that. However, uh, James did um, push to undo the Tyndale translating of Ecclesia, which is an incredible, very very important. Uh, translational effort to not call Ecclesia the church. In the same way that Henry broke from his marriage to devoutly Roman Catholic Catherine of Aragon of Spain in order to find a, a vessel who would provide him with a male heir. That's the only reason he broke from the Catholic Church, and he basically created a miniature Catholic Church. The Anglican Church right. is a miniature Catholic Church. That's all it is. It maintains all of the same structures, all of the same hierarchies, and good Protestants of the day, in particular John Knox, the Scot, the fiery Scot preacher, John Knox excoriated Henry for that. He, he wasn't fooled. It was not really a break from the Catholic Church. It was just a new authority. It was a transferring of the papal authority to, to the throne of England so that Henry could marry and, and divorce his Catholic wife and remarry to find himself a, a woman that would provide him an heir. That's all it was. 
And to this very day, the Catholic Church uses this to lure Anglicans to her side. As a matter of fact, I'd like to continue to use this example. Oh, I think his name was Gareth Jones, an Anglican vicar who was arrested in, I want to say, London for drunk and disorderly conduct. And when the police and, and paramedics tried to settle him down, he all screamed at them, you're effed, I'm with the Vatican, and I have immunity. It's, 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 it's hilarious. I'm pretty sure his name is Gareth Jones, an Anglican vicar, and he screamed at them, you're, you're effed. I have immunity. I'm with the Vatican. And you know what that means. You know what that kind of power that brings. And that's that was, it's crazy. But it's a great example. And that happened around example. the time of uh, Henry VIII? No, no, that's modern. That's modern. That's gotcha. modern. So they're still coming. That was in the last 10 years. Gareth Jones got arrested there and, 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 and screamed, I'm with the Vatican. No, you're not. You're an Anglican vicar. It just is proof of how seamlessly they change. The Episcopal Church is the same. They're just so close to the Catholic Church. I, I call them uh, I call them Catholic light. But anyway, to, to come back to to Henry and, uh, and his James, daughter, right? Yeah, yeah, and James the first of England, and who was also James the sixth of Scotland. He maintained the structure, and he also maintained translating ecclesia not as fellowship, not as not as body, but as church. And church implies an organizational structure, and it gives credence to the Catholic structure of, of priests and cardinals and bishops, uh, which is unbiblical. So uh, as the pros and cons of the King James translation, that the, the uh, Texas Receptus is superior. The Texas Receptus is superior. But uh, there are some questions about uh, James getting rid of that. For instance, there were some margin notes that clearly depicted the Catholic Church as the fourth and final beast, the great harlot of Babylon, and those were wiped out too. So eh, it was it was probably more harm than good came from erasing the Geneva the Geneva notes. But yeah, that's what a commentary is for for Christians who want to study the Bible. Yeah, you can make a case for a clean Bible, find the notes yourself. But there was an ulterior motive to get rid of those margin notes. There were some some pretty clear. Uh, look, that's what you rely on notes and for is to keep understanding where, where it's it's very difficult to read. So, right. some questions about James. Look, James and Elizabeth were not passionate persons. They were Protestants of their age. They were riding the popularity of, of old against corruption. And they they were happy to put Protestants to the stake for being Protestant. Elizabeth and James were were happy to burn Protestants because they wanted one thing and one thing only. They wanted ability in their reigns. They wanted to maintain power. So they were Protestants of convenience. I, I think the greatest Protestants that ever came close to power were uh, Edward the Sixth, um, Harry's. Um, uh, son Edward the Sixth was raised by uh, great Protestant theologians, including uh, John Knox, uh, Roger Cranmer, I believe, also the, the Protestant um, Archbishop of Canterbury. He was he was solid. He was a solid theological. He believed. He lived 
his Protestant Christian faith, and that's why he murdered. He was assassinated before he had a chance to come to the throne. And the other was uh, Oliver Cromwell, who was too powerful a a general to be immediately assassinated. It was only until after he was in power that he was murdered. And maybe you can make a case for William of Orange, uh, but beyond that, I don't know of any other. And this is why I get so frustrated with these rewrites, and, and I try to deal with this in Rome's of mass destruction. I, I don't see any precedent. I don't see any real weight to this idea of wars of religion, the idea that Protestants uh, were in power and slaughtered Catholics and Catholics were in power and slaughtered Protestants. I, I just see a vast majority of Catholics slaughtering Protestants, and the Huguenots are, are an example that I, that I give a book, and, and Catherine de Medici. Uh, St. Bartholomew's Massacre is an example of that. You're kind of, your late, gonna, latency is coming in and out, Johnny. Are you, is something going on with your internet or is it mine? <clears throat> check test test. Yeah, you're, I, yeah. No, you're, it okay. just seems like you're coming in and out. Okay. Yeah, just, uh, uh, speak, let me pull up my chat so we can, we can, uh, no, no, no. track of this. All right, it sounds better right now. Okay, okay please continue. Good. Uh, Send me a note in the chat if you okay. lose me, and, okay. and I'll pause and come back. Right. Yeah, so w- what I was saying is that I I have very few examples of Protestants being in power, committing abuses and or slaughtering Catholics. It's almost always the other way around. Right, well, it's always the Protestants who had to flee to other lands, right? So for Pur- Puritans came to the New World, Huguenots came to the New World. A lot of these people had to flee. Like, they literally had to run. The Catholic, you don't see Catholics, you know, traveling to another country generally. That's, a great, that's yeah. a great example. Great example. The Huguenots are, are, man, what a tragedy. What a tragedy. Yeah. Even have been hunted down in America. Nobody knows credit on my research for finding that, that the Huguenots were hunted down out of France, ejected from France. The Sun King, Louis XIV, what, what a monster. He would require Protestants to board his soldiers who would then rape and abuse the wives and children. And the, they were required to convert to Catholicism. And they were not allowed to leave. They, they, Louis' administration did all they could to torture and make the humanos and their option was not to leave. Their option was to convert or die. They did some didn't slip out. A contingent slipped out to America and they were slaughtered there by Spaniards. Right, that happened in Florida. That was an interesting story. I wasn't aware of that either. Yeah. Travel chase. So you don't see the the word massacre follows the Protestants everywhere. Whether it's the Valdenses and Albigenses, the Huguenots, the word massacre follows them everywhere. And so what I've I've seen is that it's basically propaganda and a right to really say that in any way that the wars, there were so called wars, that it was equal, that Protestants uh, persecuted and, and tortured. The, the, uh, the Waldenses, like, were very back-to-nature, kind of uh, not very politically active. They were kind of like traveling, 
priests, but they were wiped out for that. You know, they were called heretics. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. They they were they were traveling evangelists. What a great tactic! They would sing the gospel. They would travel to villages and they would commit it to memory in song, and it was so powerful for them. And and they were wiped out, virtually wiped out. The Valdenses are are um, all on board the medical sharing. Authority with uh, the Catholic Church. Wiped out. Just a footnote of history. And considered by the Catholic Church as heretics. Like uh, competitors, really. Yeah, that was the First Crusades. Nobody knows the First Crusades were against Christians in Europe. Nobody knows it. And when you say crusade, you say, oh, it was Christians fighting against Muslims and Jews. No, it was Catholics murdering Christians in Europe. Those were the first crusades against the Valdenses and Albigenses and, and the Alps and uh, really evil, brutal stuff. Uh, throwing women and children off cliffs, uh, cutting, cutting pregnant women open to, to murder their babies. And really vicious, vicious stuff. Yeah, really. I mean, the, the 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 tales of just brutality are off the charts. They're they're really something else. And all based on all based on Catholic intolerance of Protestant Christians. Uh, I, I get into that the Valdenza and Albigenza stories in secret history, but I get into the Huguenot stories in uh, Romans of Mass Destruction, and very similar, just sickeningly similar. Of, of Huguenots, uh, the Cardinal of Lorraine, and, and Huguenots being found to be worshiping, trying to worship secretly in a barn. Uh, um, Catholic soldiers arrive, uh, close up the barn, and burn them alive. Right. And, 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 and one soldier tries to open a window out of compassion. He's beat up. The window's closed, and the screams are are, are endured, and they're thrown. They're literally thrown back through the window into the fire to burn alive. Men, women, and children, just because they were having a, a Protestant worship service. And that was the original Friday the Thirteenth. No, that was against the uh, Knights Templar. But this, the Catherine de Medici, yeah, she was really something else. Another, they called her the maggot from Italy. Yeah. Another Italian, you know, born of this whole kind yeah. of uh, scary family in France, poisoning people and involved in all kinds of false flags, affair de placard, you called it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was against Francis the First there, and it was basically a false flag. There was there was no reason for uh, Huguenots and and French Protestants to threaten the king by putting a placard outside his bedchamber that offensively attacked the Catholic sacraments. There's no reason for that. There's no reason for that. The, the only thing that that would possibly do is make Catholics angry and polarize Catholics and harden Catholics to wiping Protestants out, and that's exactly what it did. And, and it is, I do have a source uh, that, that accurately calls the affair of the placards a false flag, and, and I believe it was as well. Just uh, you, you said it, man, that, that the ones who were forced to an exodus when they were allowed to leave are the Protestants. They were the ones that were that were kicked out. But John Calvin, as uh, Jean Calvin, one of the most famous people, don't even know he was French. Nobody knows that John Calvin was French. He was himself forced to leave France on on 
you know, running from the Inquisition over to Geneva, Switzerland. Yeah, over the border, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Forced to run away or, or else face the Inquisition. So John Calvin's own story. And, and, and now we have these um, efforts to claim that uh, that Calvin pushed heresies and so forth, and Calvinism versus Arminianism is a, just a ridiculous debate of, of uh, smoke and mirrors. Calvin was was and is one, one of the greatest uh, Protestant thinkers and was French and, and, and greatly hated by French Catholics because he was a Frenchman, forced to leave. They, the only ones forced to leave are the Protestants and the Christians. So, uh, you know, the, let me roll this in. I'll, I'll roll this into... Um, Joan of Arc and and Jill uh, uh, Deray. Yeah, Jill Deray. And so you know, in, in American, we call them Giles Giles Deray's. Right. You know, <laughs> properly. You know, uh, Gil Gil Deray. We say Gil Deray. Uh, forgive me, my French is not not very good. It but, is mine. Uh, it's okay. Gil uh, Giles, uh, however you want to pronounce his name, Deray Deray's. It's uh, G I L L E S D E R A I S. A.K.A. Bluebeard, and he was the the fighting companion of Joan of Arc, particularly in the Siege of Orleans. Uh, it was at Orleans, I believe, that um, that Joan of Arc received a, a wound. Uh, she was um, she had armor on to protect herself, but there was an opening in the armor from the neck and the shoulder, and uh, she received an arrow at at that uh, at that joint. Fell in battle. She almost died, and a knight galloped to her side, protected her, brought her back. She was, she was, her wound was dressed, and she ran back into battle. And that was uh, Duray's. So right, who was the mar- uh, became the marshal of France, which is yes, basically their most, right, the most marshal important military person in France. What an honor! What an honor! The the, the highest military official in in honor, at least, not necessarily. In command, but in honor, the highest military official in France. Right. You can actually still see the list of all the Marshal of France, the title Marshal, going back, I think, to the 12th century. So it just is a, it's a, it's a highest honor to have and, that title. And then when you step back and have an objective look at what he was accused of, you are shocked. But of course, that's one of the reasons why I wrote Romans of Mass Destruction. You're not going to see that. You're, you're not going to – if you hear anything about Bluebeard, it's usually in myth and legend and story and very little about DeRay's. Right, and even you, you quote Dave McGowan in there. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that story is lost. Like I, I found out about DeRay from Crowley because of the band lecture, which was never given. But he gave a positive view of this monster who hid behind um, – I think that's pretty evident that he hid behind his – uh, his affiliation for Catholic Church by building a church. So a lot of his infamous, I mean, how many people did he claim to have killed? Yeah, that's that's another thing that I think I, I've attempted to bring out in of the book is this really quirky, I call it the Opus Dei effect, of you have these prominent Catholics who by day are are pious devout roman catholics and then by night are satan worshiping pedophiles murderers and there are several examples in the book and and Dereus is one of them there's several um, modern examples too though there's stories here in the states 
of these guys engaged, not as bad as Durai, who killed and murdered young men, 500 possibly, but you still hear of those stories. I think there was a recent story in Wisconsin. Well, particularly of devout Roman Catholics, you have to look no further than Jimmy Savile. Hyper-devout Roman Catholic who went regularly to a daily mass, not just a, a weekend mass, but went regularly to a daily mass, and, and then by night would rape children and pray in Latin while he raped the children. And he wasn't a lone monster. He was, he was enabled by both the Catholic Church and the English government. He would be invited by both the Catholic Church and English government to spend overnight in orphanages and hospitals. Are you kidding me? Where he would go from room to room raping children. Never exposed until he was dead. And he used to give... There's actually... Dead things that where he was um, giving speeches or sermons at Catholic churches. There's videos of him. Uh, you can see Savile, and he was networked. I mean, he was definitely a part of the upper crust uh, and a very well-known popular person in the U.K. And just just uh, had to, you know, tear through society, kind of like a Jill Ray. You don't know if he killed anybody or anything, but when he was buried, you know, he was buried like a witch. They put his uh, casket at 33 degrees and made it face east. And that's the, that is the, the mixing of this occult with Roman Catholicism, seamless mixing. And, and I contend that the individuals involved and the individuals at the highest levels of the Catholic Church see no contradiction. Zero. That, that's a shame because we know that Gilles de Rise was involved with all kinds of astrologers and black magicians and supposedly wrote things in the blood of his victims, wrote magic books that are probably in a Vatican library somewhere, Absolutely. not accessible to the public. And it's it was, there, were, there were two priests, uh, Gil uh, Deseus and... See, Perlotti, France. Francisco Perlotti. Perlotti, yes. From Italy. Francis. Like Italy, right. There's a consistent theme in your book, too, that Italy is kind of this... Uh, cauldron of black magic and all kinds of poisoners and malfeasance comes out of Italy. And what happened, William? They went unpunished. They right. went unpunished. They they found a couple of sacrificial... Uh, uh, DeRay was, was sacrificed. He was never tortured. And he did not break. He did not give a confession until threatened with excommunication. He was right. threatened with torture and he remained defiant he was threatened with excommunication, and he broke down and gave a full confession. Yeah, and he had and, two kind of sidekicks, but he was networked. There was all kinds of people involved. There were people finding victims for him all throughout the thing. And thoroughly I mean, yeah, networked. Yeah. Thoroughly networked. And how the fact that neither of the priests who were conducting the satanic mass masses were prosecuted, particularly Prelati. Prelati, who was, I could really say, in honesty, the ringleader Went free, was a free man, was under, was in custody, also gave a confession, and then set free. What? Yeah, Are you incredible. kidding me? And the, it was interesting, too, that when he was first accused, I think the story was he went into church and denied everything in this white, he dressed all in white, and he had a, a 500 dead kids that he su subjected to the worst of the worst. Well, and again, and, and the reason why DeRay was was ever brought to this point of uh, having it a, uh, a trial was because he crossed the church. 
He crossed the church and he crossed his uh, wealthy family. He, he was living this weird double life. Uh, I call it the Opus Dei effect, where you mortify the flesh, you, you wear literally barbed wire uh, around your naked flesh, uh, you cause yourself pain, you starve yourself, you whip yourself, and then you feel that you've earned the ability to let it all hang out and you commit heinous, heinous crimes. Whatever it is that your 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 flesh tells you to do, and you you feel like you've earned that. I call it the Opus Dei effect. Gotcha. So he was doing this repeatedly, over and over, kidnapping children, committing I, acts on these children, just unspeakable. Bad. I think for a decade, though, his run was incredible. Like it wasn't something where he was happening just over a year span. Hundreds, yeah, hundreds, hundreds. Yeah. hundreds. And the only time it started to to be a problem was in this, what I call this Opus Dei effect, he was spending inordinate, crazy amounts of money uh, courting the goodwill of the same citizenry he was feeding on with place, but he also, just like you said, paid for his own chapel, the Chapel of the Holy Innocents. Yeah, wow, incredible. Paid for his own chapel, paid for his own clergy, paid for his own university, his own Catholic university, also of the Holy Innocents. And so this is what finally was breaking his finances, and this is what forced him to seek an answer through demonology. And where did he go? He went to Roman Catholic priests to help guide him in ritually torturing and murdering children to evoke help of demons to maintain his family treasury. Now, what he would do is, when he got low on funds, he would sell off a family castle. Then his family would get angry and say, wait a minute, that's my inheritance. When you die, I'm supposed to get that. You can't sell that. They would raise an army and go take it back by force. And then DeRay would raise a counter-army, and with the person that he sold the, 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 the castle to, would go and retake it. Well, in this process, some of the evidence would crop up. Bodies, sacrificed bodies, bodies of children that were, that were used in these uh, satanic masses. That's how this came to the surface. And it wasn't until that he used and abused a member of the clergy in this process of selling his property. It was sold to a, uh, a monk, or a monk was managing this, this sale, and, and he intervened and encroached upon a holy mass and had this monk beat up. And, and this is what really facilitated his trial. Yeah, it's just a really incredible story because he was such one of history's great monsters. And Joan of Arc, you know, was seen as, you know, this kind of uh, person who angels were speaking to. And Derise is talking to some demon named Baron. And then her own countrymen serve her up as a witch to the English who occupy, occupied northern France. She gets burned at the stake. Then he gets burned at the stake. It's really an incredible narrative. And the, the consistency of it all is that the English at the time in France were devoutly Roman Catholic. The French at the time, through to today, are devoutly Roman Catholic. Right, and she, she was, was deemed a heretic. I think it was because she wore men's clothing. That's yeah, why they, they got her for her. They didn't get her yes. for anything else.
they dug hard. You know what they had to do? They had to rely upon the Sorbonne, the brilliant Catholic theological doctrinal minds at the Sorbonne, the, the, the main Catholic university in Paris, to even come up with anything worthy of murdering her. She was too much of a threat because she believed in something above her own aggrandizement as opposed to the aristocracy who were all for themselves. That was the whole Hundred Years' War was all about greed and, and the Plantagenets versus the Valois and who could, who could steal more land from whom. And here comes this upstart, this young girl, who believed she was given uh, a mission by God to lead the people. And, and she was worshipped, man. She was worshipped. She was very, very dangerous. And it was just decided to, uh, to do her in. And so it was the Catholic Church that burned her alive for dressing in men's clothing. It was a doctrine provided by the leading Catholic university of the time, the Sorbonne in Paris. And a couple hundred years later, the Catholic Church turned around and canonized her. Well, wait a minute. Aren't you the same entity that, that burned her alive? Yes. <laughs> Everybody forgets that. They blame the English. The English were Catholics. The English were doing just what the Pope told them, just like the French were. Yeah, she was. I think she was a threat, don't you think? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Just like I anything think, else is really a threat. The, the Protestants and all these other people threatened Catholic power and the fronts at each one of those kingdoms, you know? That was it. it what, what a betrayal. She helped crown Charles Seventh. She helped crown him. It was her inspiration that, that uh, broke the English-Burgundian alliance. And yep. then they, they, they just... They, they betrayed her. Yeah. They, they literally threw her to her enemies. Johnny, because... we, are, we are at 55 minutes. We're almost at an hour. Um, is there anything else in this very detailed book that you would like to impart to the listener? And where can they get the book? Oh, my goodness. You can get it at Amazon. Just like you know, Unfortunately, it's Amazon US for now. And I'm trying to... Uh, work it with the Amazons around uh, internationally. All four of my books, Illuminati Unmasked, Secret History, Eaters of Children, and Romans of Mass Destruction, you get through Amazon.com. Uh, you can see my website at Johnny Cerucci, J-O-H-N-N-Y-C-I-R-U-C-C-I.com. I do maintain my second uh, YouTube channel, Giovanni Cerucci, on, on YouTube. You can find all this stuff through my my website, my social networking, and it's Johnny. Web, the email is Johnny at JohnnySucci.com. But that's where the book of Romans of Ma uh, Mass Destruction can be got through, uh, right through Amazon. And man, I just hope that this gave a little bit of an insight into this history that is just invisible. And nobody knows this stuff. And, and I'm, I'm so honored and blessed that uh, not only did you, did you help me with it, but uh, you read it and, and you, you understand my point that this yes. is stuff that. It's a story that needed to be told because it's been buried, it's been erased, and one of the reasons why it's been erased is that um, the power structure then that is the same as the power structure today was running, the, the victors telling the history. Yes, and no, is, that's an excellent point, and I think you succeeded in capturing each one of these pivotal moments in history in these countries where this, these persecutions took place, and you see the work of... This church involved in so many of these abuses—it's incredible. And because you, cause you can, for me, I, you see the stories independently. You hear about uh, 
your Durai or the Medici's, but when you see it happening all over in these different countries, the UK, France, Italy, you really see the big picture. And I think that that is one of the, the great takeaways from the book. Good for you. And it absolutely is applicable today. It gives insight into the power of the Vatican uh, two, three, four hundred years ago that is maintained through today through the corruption, through perversion and massive corruption and the heinous crimes. They're just not as open. You don't have football fields of impaled human beings to shock you by a Roman Catholic crusader, a former Orthodox Vlad the Impaler, um, a Roman Catholic crusader. You don't have that obvious evidence, but the crimes are just as shocking uh, through to this day. The the systemic child sex slave trafficking, murder, uh, black sites, intelligence uh, abuses, drone striking, wars that are completely unfounded, unnecessary. They're all similar. They're just underground today. And so that's what Romans of Mass Destruction gives you. It's the bold, in-your-face history of the same corrupt matrix we're living today. Awesome. That's a great way to sum that up. So again, the title of the book is Romans of Mass Destruction, Volume 1, How the Vatican Created and Enabled Some of History's Most Monstrous Serial Killers. Johnny, I look forward to Volume 2. I look forward to having you back on and discussing that one in the future. Wim, I'm I'm so excited to have you as a friend and a partner and... um, I'll keep you in, in, in touch with all awesome. of the advances of any future volumes. All right. Friend. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks so much. I appreciate your time, and uh, congratulations on a, another superb book. Thank you.